Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, everybody, here we go again. Welcome back to Clearer Thinking. Uh, On Sunday, uh, we studied the baptism of Jesus. Now that's an event that all the gospel writers record uh, as an event in Jesus' life, but, and so it's obviously a big deal. And after the sermon, uh, I got a few questions, uh, which was awesome, by the way, so do that again. I love it when people ask questions, follow-up questions to the sermon. Uh, I hope you guys appreciate it, too. Anyhow, here's the question I got. What are your thoughts on people slash denominations like Reformed Baptists who use this passage as the example for infant dedications and then adult baptism? citing the fact that Jesus received the sign of the covenant twice through circumcision and baptism. And that's a great question. And at the time I got it, I didn't really have an answer, partly because, actually, I was unfamiliar with that argument. Um, I've read quite a bit on the subject of baptism, like who should be baptized, who shouldn't be, when you should be baptized, how to be baptized, etc., etc., etc. But I have to admit... I was kind of unfamiliar with the argument that uses Jesus' own baptism as an argument for what is called believer's baptism. And just uh, to be clear, this is, this is how I'm defining believer's baptism, and I got this from churches that uh, practice baptism this way. So this is their language, not mine. Baptism is the public declaration that a believer makes to evidence that they have decided to follow Jesus Christ. For those who have made a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Scripture commands that baptism as a public declaration of and identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, baptism, therefore, should only be administered to someone who has personally trusted in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And this is to be distinguished from covenantal baptism which is practiced by churches like Grace Valley. Uh, Some people call it infant baptism, but that's not actually a good description of it because infant baptism, if you use that term, it sort of implies that the baptism is only to be administered to those who are babies, and that's not what it actually means. It means that baptism is administered based upon the covenant God makes with his people. So it can be given to both those who confess a personal faith in Jesus, and the children of those who do. Now, the whole question of believers' baptism versus covenantal baptism is huge, okay? And my intention is not to get too deep into the topic as a whole. I'm just going to do three things. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to answer the question about Jesus' baptism as an argument for believers' baptism, and that's going to take most of the time. And then I'm just going to share why I think believer's baptism can't really accomplish what it intends to. Um, And that kind of undermines the argument that it's the only proper way to administer baptism. And then I want to to highlight the different understanding of baptism between the two traditions. Um, The second and third things are going to be really quick. They might even create more questions than answers. That's fine. Text me your questions. And uh, I'm happy to go a little deeper with you if you want. Now, I know it might sound like I'm reading a paper at times rather than doing a podcast. 
and I apologize for that, but I'm trying to be precise in my language because I don't want to misrepresent the arguments. People seem to have very, very strong feelings about this subject. And so before I start, let me just say this. I do believe that covenantal baptism is well supported by the Bible, just like believer's baptism is. Now, that being said, I understand that sincere followers of Jesus Christ will disagree with me. And I, for one, am totally okay with that. The kingdom of God has room for all of us. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, in my opinion. Okay, now I discovered in my research that Jesus' own baptism is actually an important part of the argument for believers' baptism by none other than John Piper. And I have a huge amount of respect for John Piper. And he has convinced a lot of people uh, of his position. And he actually uses this story as part of his argument. Uh, His point is this, and I'm quoting him. The most important thing to learn is that when a Jewish person received John's baptism, it was a radical act of individual commitment to belong to the true people of God based upon personal confession and repentance, not on corporate identity with Israel through birth, end quote. So he says that John the Baptist came to minister to the Jews who were already God's people in an outward ethnic sense. These were people who were part of God's covenant, and they had the sign of that covenant, that is circumcision, at least the men did, right? But John tells them to repent and be baptized, showing that they were sinners who need to get right with God. So baptism was a sign that they were renouncing their old dependency on ethnic Jewishness and were relying wholly on the mercy of God to forgive those who confess their sins and repent. Let me quote Piper one more time. Jewishness was no guarantee of salvation. Being born into a covenant family was no guarantee of being a child of God. Baptism is John's new sign of belonging to the true people of God, not based on Jewishness or being born into a covenant family, but based on radically personal individual repentance and faith. John's baptism is not simply a continuation of circumcision. This is important. Because those who defend infant baptism often appeal to circumcision as the old sign of the covenant and say that baptism is the new sign. The one was given to infants, and so should the other be. End quote. Now, (laughs) okay, look, far be it from me to disagree with a scholar as accomplished as John Piper. But I am going to. Not because I'm as smart as John Piper. I am not. I am most definitely not. Rather, I'm just more convinced by the arguments of other scholars from the Reformed tradition who interpret John the Baptist's baptism differently than John Piper does. They actually understand circumcision differently, too. Um, And here's what I mean. It's true that Jewishness was no guarantee of salvation. Piper is absolutely right about that. But that actually was always true. Abraham, we're told, uh, in Genesis, he believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision, not by being the father of the Jews. In fact, 
he was circumcised as a sign of the salvation that he had after he was saved. The problem was that the Jews had come to, re to rest their salvation on the sign, not on what it signified. But that wasn't the problem of circumcision. That was the problem of the Jews. So yes, Piper's right. John is telling these, these Jews, you can't trust your ethnic heritage for salvation. You need to repent. But here's the thing. The outward sign does not and never has automatically or magically conveyed the inward blessing that it signifies, whether the sign is circumcision or baptism. Baptism is meant to point toward the spiritual reality of being united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and the spiritual reality of the washing away of our sin. Baptism itself, though, doesn't guarantee that. There's actually an example of this in Acts chapter 8. Uh, I get this from John uh, J.I. Packer, actually, a brilliant Anglican uh, scholar who, who has passed away now. Some of you are probably familiar with his name. And in Acts chapter 8, there was a sorcerer named Simon Magnus in Samaria, who we read believed and was baptized. Now later, Peter comes to the town in Samaria, and he is anointing people with the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other topic, <laughs> okay? But anyhow, he's anointing people with the Holy Spirit. Simon tries to buy that ability from Peter. He wants to be able to do the same thing. Now, Peter rebukes him, and he says that he has an unrenewed heart. So it turns out, as Packer points out, that Simon did not really believe when he was baptized. If he did come to faith, and verse 24 of Acts chapter 9 is a bit ambiguous on the point, but if he did come to faith, faith only came to him later, after his baptism. So here's the point. I don't think Piper is right in so closely identifying circumcision with ethnic Israel. But the bigger issue is that John's baptism, I don't think, was actually the same type of baptism that we undergo called what I'll just call Christian baptism. Now, I am going against even John Calvin on this, okay? So I hold to this belief uh, lightly. I do not grasp it close to my chest. Uh, but many smarter reform scholars than me also disagree with Calvin. So this isn't me kind of coming up with my own thing and going out on a limb. The argument is this. John the Baptist was the final Old Testament prophet. So his baptism was preparatory, uh, revealing that Israel must turn from the same uncleanness that was marking uh, their Gentile persecutors. So John is seen as the new Elijah. He's a prophet of the coming Messiah. And we know that from Matthew 4 and, or sorry, Malachi 4 and Matthew chapter 11. His baptism is not the same as the one Jesus commands in Matthew 28, when he says, go and baptize people in, my, uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It does share points of contact. The most important of these is our need to repent of our sin. But John was actually calling the Jews back to faithful Judaism. He was calling them back 
from away, I should say, he was calling them away from apostate Judaism to be prepared for the coming Messiah. But it was still Jewish repentance for forsaking obedience to God and the law. So the people still had to make sacrifices. Uh, There was still no atonement, no final atonement for sin yet because Jesus hadn't died for sin. And there was no accepting Christ as the Messiah or a Savior because he had not completed his work at this point. Christian baptism is done in the name of the Trinity, and it signifies our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So John's baptism was different. Even the Apostle Paul acknowledges as much. In, in Acts chapter 18, we learn that Apollos is preaching in Ephesus, and he's doing a good job of teaching, um, but there's things he doesn't quite know about, and so Priscilla and Aquila, they teach him more and, and give him better understanding, and we read that he only knows about the baptism of John. Then, in Acts 19, Paul arrives at Ephesus, and listen to what he says. This is the beginning of Acts chapter 19. There, Paul found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You hear that? On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism was a baptism of preparation. For years before the coming of Jesus, the Jews had used baptism in ritual cleansing ceremonies of Gentile proselytes. These are Gentiles who who started to believe uh, the Jewish faith. John the Baptist took that baptism and applied it to the Jews themselves. It wasn't just the Gentiles who needed cleansing. Jews needed cleansing too. Now, I'm not saying that there are not significant similarities between John the Baptist's baptism and what we now call Christian baptism. In fact, there are. What I am saying is that I think the differences are significant enough uh, Uh, that we should not use the event of Jesus' baptism as an argument for believers' baptism the way John Piper does. That's, That's all I'm saying. I think, though, and, and I guess actually what I'm saying then is that if you're going to argue for believers' baptism, there are other texts that are, are better used than this one. But I think the deeper question here is actually whether the validity of baptism depends upon the presence of saving faith or merely upon the presence of a profession of faith, whether or not it is saving. And I, for one, have come to hold the latter. The mere profession of faith is all that is required in order for baptism to be rightly administered. And here's why. Future lapses of faith or even outright apostasy, does not nullify the fact of baptism. If you leave the faith and come back later, you don't need to be baptized again. 
And to make the validity of baptism depend on the presence of saving faith is to leave too much room for doubt and vacillation and uncertainty. There are those with very sensitive consciences and those who are very introspective. Um, and, and even those with an inclination for the melodramatic, uh, who will always find the ability to question the genuineness of their faith, and they may seek to be baptized again and again. But we can't infallibly read someone's heart, and nor are we entirely competent to read our own hearts. Baptism, I think, is more objective than all of that. At least it seems to me to be that way. So instead of viewing the sacraments as primarily a matter of one's self-expression, whether of faith or of repentance or of anything else, frankly, I think the Bible teaches that baptism is first and foremost an expression of the divine's will. It is a, a divine expression, a means of grace by which God speaks and strengthens our faith. Baptism, as we say whenever we hold a baptism, is a tangible, visible word. It is a dramatization that God uses to proclaim his saving promises. So as surely as your body is washed clean with this water, so surely is your body and soul spiritually washed clean of sin and guilt by the blood of Christ and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And so baptism then is actually, first of all, a divine testimony before it is a human testimony. Now that may lead you to a number of questions because like I said, I'm not answering everything in this short podcast, but I do think it allows us food for thought as we consider the place of baptism in the Christian life. Okay, friends. <laughs> That is it. I know it might feel a little bit like drinking through a fire hose, but the great thing about a podcast is, is you can listen to it again and again, if you want. <laughs> or you can just say, oi, 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 I better do some reading on my own. And if you want any resources for that on both sides of the argument, I am happy to offer them to you and you can uh, decide for yourself. But let's just end where we began, reminding ourselves again, that those who hold to believer's baptism and those who hold to covenantal baptism both believe the same gospel of Jesus Christ and both testify to the same promises being sealed to us in our baptism, that we are united to Jesus, the one who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we should have died, and because of that, our sins are washed away through the washing of rebirth, as scriptures teach us. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you again next time on the Clearer Thinking Podcast from GVC. Take care. <laughs>